0: Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at Hoover. Richard, how are you?
1: I'm great, thank you.
0: Richard, as always, there's a lot in the news we want to get to, uh, including uh, a recent op-ed in the Boston Globe on portraits at the Harvard Medical School. But before we get to any of that, I want to start with something you wrote for Defining Ideas, the Hoover Institution's journal, on June 10th. It was called
1: Patrick Deneen's Delusions. Uh, Who is Patrick Deneen and what are his delusions? Patrick Deneen is a political science professor at Notre Dame um, who is a noted author and what he has done, he's written a book and the whole point of this book is basically to describe the uh, decline and fall of western civilization it's essentially a Jeremiah, which is announcing that when you start to try to uh, deal with uh, the problems of today, all forms of classical liberalism are essentially uh, a failure and it's written in a kind of a dramatic style. I came upon the book, not directly, but uh, 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 Bill McGurn at the Wall Street Journal wrote a weekend interview with him. It was a kind of an odd interview because usually these are kinds of puff pieces in the way in which they take place. But in this particular situation, it turned out that um, uh, what happened is that uh, – Uh, McGurn was deeply skeptical of the book and and let me just sort of give its title why liberalism has failed and explain why it is I think that McGurn had this kind of difficulty liberalism for these purposes could be one of two brands he condemns both without distinguishing clearly between them it could either be sort of the modern political left uh, with its welfare state or it could be classical liberalism which stresses the uh, importance of private property and limited government And, and the way in which this claim becomes so frightening in some sense is that it turns out he says there are three basic ideologies in this world uh, fascism and communism he kind of conceives that those two have failed and then there's liberalism and he announces that it has failed as well what he doesn't do is come up with some fourth element that you could actually turn to to explain why it is better than the liberalism which has failed and he doesn't bother to explore any of the differences between classical liberalism which I think has amazingly stable properties if you could keep the basic constitutional structure in place and modern progressivism. One with the emphasis on property rights is trying to reduce the level of redistribution while supplying public goods. The other essentially doesn't care very much about public goods, um, but what it's trying to do is to use the power of the state to redistribute wealth from one group to another, and it turns out the road to hell is often paid with good intentions. There's a lot of political fractionization going away. Often the redistributions are from farmers to businessmen or businessmen to farmers, tenants to landlords, employees to employers. Very rarely is it from rich to poor, and so what you've done is you're left with this sort of frightening spectacle that somebody has turned down the only system of democratic governance that actually seems to work and gives us basically nothing in its place. And you know McGurn was very upset about that and I'm very upset about it and it seems to me that you know if you're dealing with politics you cannot just have an abject skepticism about anything and everything putting nothing in its place what you have to do is to recognize that the best of all political institutions has some imperfections try to figure out how you correct them rather than junking the whole system for what will be by the time you're done some kind of an artificial totalitarian kind of regime. Uh, because if you don't believe in a given tay of politics, on the one hand, within a system of property rights, there's virtually very little else that you can do other than have enormous concentrations of power at the center.
0: Now, as you mentioned, the name of the book is called is, uh, Why Liberalism Has Failed. But as you note early on in your piece, in a way, he's, his argument is that liberalism has succeeded, Right. That liberalism is seen as a failure precisely because liberalism, in his view of it, has stayed true to its own principles and has ruined a lot of what people in America uh, did not want to see ruined, that it undermined. Uh, values, morality, other things, family mm. in America. Now, we've seen versions of this argument before, much more, I think, much more restrained and much more sensible versions of this argument. Maybe the most famous one was by Urban Crystal uh, 40-something years ago called uh, Two Cheers for Capitalism. Right, His colleague at the Public Interest, Daniel Bell, wrote a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. Of course, he was, Bell was my teacher, by the way.
1: Oh, he was? I didn't know that. Well, he taught me. Not only was my teacher, we were very close at one oh. time. and remained close to, to the time he died in 2011. He always used to say, I was a splendid student. Why is it that I strayed so far from his particular version of tough-minded 1950s uh, liberalism, which is what he was? Daniel Bell was kind of a Hubert Humphrey-type character, strong national defense. NATO, and so forth. Be careful on the welfare state, but don't try to get rid of it altogether. He was a very sensible man, and I became more of a small government guy than he did. And you know, 40 years after I was done with this class, he never quite forgave me.
0: Uh, well, you know, it's one thing to see the, the, this critique coming from Daniel Bell. And while we're name-dropping, there was a, there was a great essay recently by his son, uh, is it David Bell? Maybe David, David Bell at
1: Princeton, the French professor.
0: Yeah, I had a great essay looking back at a you know in honor of the late Daniel Bell's uh, centenary. Um, but I digress. It's one thing to see these critiques coming um, from the left. It's another thing to see them coming. I think that's what made what De- made Denine's book so interesting, um, so noteworthy. Is that we're now seeing attacks on classical liberalism from the right, from within the old sort of what we call the William F. Buckley fusion of conservatism and libertarianism, to see um, this this criticism coming from sort of the first things magazine set, folks like Patrick Deneen, um, Saurabh Amari, who we'll get to in a moment. Um, these people levying attacks on liberalism was a real eye-opener um, because what, what Deneen is calling for as an alternative, as you say, he lays out the three classic options are fascism, socialism and liberalism and the first two have failed and now the third is failing and the question is well what exactly is it that denine wants I, mean, I think what denine wants is something closer to a religious uh you know an, an integralist uh society in which government and religion are fused together as one
1: which um, religion
0: i ask right well you should I've, I've, I'm, I'm i'm catholic i hope I'm, I'm i hope i'm in um but I, one never knows with these people um but it's 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 interesting that they look at the flaws of classical liberalism, which, as you said, has very stable properties and has been perhaps the most successful means of economic and political organization in in human history. And then to say, well, that's a failure because of some current flaws, um, and therefore we need to go back to a system that proved uh, a catastrophic failure centuries ago leaves me scratching my head.
1: Well, when you let s- me... Oh, sure. I, go ahead one of the points is the question is why is this and there's been a long strand of sociology thought which I remember when I took Daniel Bell's sociology class and we read Emil Durkheim writing at the end of his career had the same kind of mysticism Uh, what they don't want is they don't want a formal state what they do is they want a community large seat and the question is what kind of community do you want and who is going to be a member of it and the reason they come up with this particular view is they believe that what uh, classical liberalism does is it celebrates autonomy and that autonomy leads to atomism in which people essentially ignore one another. And this is an absolutely crazy misconstruction of what classical liberalism says. It says with the technical side is every individual has, putting aside common carriers and the like, uh, an absolute right to decide whom he or she wants to associate with and on what particular terms. Uh, The right to refuse deal does not mean that you're going to refuse every deal that comes your way. It means that what you'll do is you'll select those particular deals and arrangements that you seem to make sense. So what classical liberalism does, and this is the way laissez-faire developed, is it facilitates voluntary arrangements, which are not only simple contracts for buying and selling. There are also all sorts of friendly societies, religious organizations, charitable organizations, universities, clubs of one sort or another, which may or may not have a Christ component with them. But what they do is they create all these sorts of intermediate institutions. And it's through those organizations that you engage in the task of self-realization. If it turns out you want to engage in knitting and make it into a fine art, this is not something you could do through a government agency. You form a knitting club. You get yourself experts. You put yourself on an online site. You communicate with other types of people. And classical liberalism encourages all of that stuff. And it's very much opposed to the sort of the modern liberalism, which will put in to place an anti-discrimination law saying oh yes you can enforce these kinds of organizations, form these organizations if you want but you've got to remember you can't exclude people for the following kinds of reasons and once you start getting forced associations in the modern state it's a completely different form of liberalism from classical liberalism and Deneen doesn't bother to distinguish between them but somehow or other manages to assume uh, that what happens if you have a small and limited government, individuals do not form voluntary organizations organization. And once you correct that particular mistake, then you have to ask whether his form of collective community mysticism, where he defines the community, what it believes and who joins, is going to be better than having, quote-unquote, the thousand points of light that is separate organizations, each organized on its own terms, giving a wealth of choices to people in the world at large that you can't manage by any top-down, centralized program. I mean, what baffles
0: me the most about Tanine's argument is that there's no – his program can't exist in the real world. It's, it's, there's no constituency for it in America, let alone um, anywhere else these days. If anything, classical liberalism and, and American constitutionalism have been the form of government most conducive to the flourishing of communities, small communities along the line of Deneen's thought um, than any other form of modern government. And to see him sort of attacking now the system that 's made his his preferred community even possible um, strikes me as as i 'll tell you what it strikes me as it strikes me as what you might call performative wokeness. Um, I think that you take it, I think you have to take denine 's book um, in conjunction with you know michael anton 's essay and now book on the flight ninety three election as he called it. And this recent attack in First Things Magazine by a, a journalist named Saurabh Amari, um, an attack on on the, the conservative David French for basically being uh, insufficiently aggressive and in, uncivil in fighting back against progressivism. I think you have to take all of this together as, as basically the right's version of performative wokeness, the sort of um, grandiose, um, over-the-top, intentionally uncivil attacks on convention that we see on the left so much. I think we see them on the right, too, and we especially see them in things like Deneen's book. I mean, obviously, there's, there's criticism to be made of, of modern American society, modern American politics, um, modern American law and governance. Uh, but, but to say that it's rotten all the way down to the roots – and that the alternative as one very smart friend of mine said is we need to go back to 13th century France uh, that just strikes me as as magical thinking and silly talk. Well
1: and I mean sort, I want to be serf.
0: Yeah. Well yeah right. Um mm. so anyway, I, I I I commend your your column to all of our listeners. I hope they'll they'll listen to it. Um while we're talking about sort of over the top right. um radical critiques of liberalism, let's move on to socialism while we're at it. Um sure, right please, ahead we've we've seen uh most recently now presidential candidate bernie sanders trying to offer a defense of socialism he seems to be defending socialism in terms that aren't actually socialist i think he's he and and um aoc and others are trying to uh redefine socialism and it's not clear whether they're actually they want to redefine it in substance or if they just want to change the way that we talk about socialism in a way that that sort of makes people more comfortable with the term and more comfortable with genuine socialism. Uh, but Richard, what do you make of, of Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders' speech or, or just the broader debates right now about socialism within the Democratic Party?
1: Well, I think what's happened is the criticisms that have been made of socialism, that it necessarily degenerates into the kinds of things that you start to see in places like Cuba, in Venezuela, China, and so forth, um, is really beginning to take hold. One of the things that I like to remind people of is that Russia – as the communist and Nazi Germany, as a capitalist on the other side, quote unquote, were mortal enemies but both of them had socialism as part of their titles. And so what is it that does this? It's essentially socialism for these purposes is government ownership and control of the means of production within the society. Now, why is this so utterly dangerous? Because it turns out that the government is basically going to be a monopolist, and that monopolist is going to be controlled by a very small group of individuals uh, down to the limit of one. Uh, so if you start to see the way this works, you kind of see the parallels going on. Uh, one of the things that the Nazis did is they had their parliament in a classic move announcing that they were ceding all their legislative power to Hitler so that he could do more or less what they want. You look to a place like China and all of a sudden you now have Mr. Xi and he becomes a kind of a president for life. Uh, you look around the rest of the world and you start to see Venezuela and the only way you get Chavez out of office is to essentially have him die. Same thing is true with Castro. You want to go to a Middle East country which isn't quite close. So Socialists, but um, when you look at Abbas, I mean, he's been president on a four-year term running into its 15th year. Uh, so what happens is the moment you start to commit yourself to this system, uh, the strong men and women, usually men at the top, essentially then start to control the entire political apparatus. And what do they do? They want to snuff down freedom. And I think one very useful illustration of this, which I had mentioned in the Dineen article, and I'm going to bring back here, is that if you look at what's going on in Hong Kong, These people have no illusions about the differences between a democratic society um, and a totalitarian one. They understand the rule of law requires that you have an independent judiciary, uh, which can act as a check upon the state. And so when Ms. Kim wants to come forward and say, you know what, I think we're going to have an extradition treaty that I can take anybody who's in Hong Kong and send them off to China and have the trials there. She puts two million people in the street. Now, why is this so important? Because it understands without all this fancy intellectual talk, the Bernie Sanders, the AOCs, and so forth. Every person on the street really does understand at a visceral level what this kind of monopoly of force in the hands of the government does. What happens is economic ruination starts to take place because centralized governments can't figure out what's going on. At this particular point, you're going to have to engage in a form of forced labor in order to get people to do what they want, subject them to criminal sanctions, impose exit taxes on them if they decide to leave one way or another, or block the exit altogether, which is, of course, what happened in East Germany. So the term socialism is tainted, I think, in the eyes of most people, and it's correctly tainted. So what do you want to do when you add the word democratic in front of it? Well, it seems to me it's an important concession because what these guys are now prepared to say is that elections can throw them out of office when it loses. But it doesn't tell you what their plan is going to be. And so – what Bernie Sanders is still labored with is what's going to essentially bring down Elizabeth Warren is that they have a scheme of control, uh, which is what I called in one of the articles I wrote on this, salami socialism. We take it one step at a time. We never announce that we're going to control the means of production, but what do we announce? We're going to put a capital tax. Well, right now it's 2 or 3% depending on how many millions you have. Oh, that sounds pretty terrible, but – it could be 2% today, 5% tomorrow, and so forth. And then Miss Warren comes up with this scheme saying, you know, I think corporate boards want to represent all their stakeholders, not just the shareholders. So I want the government to be responsible for the appointment of 40% of their members. Well, why not make it 60% at which point by changing the appointment structure in these governance situations or what happens is you have a takeover of the entire kinds of operations. And they don't really want to quit. There's not the slightest sign or awareness in any any of these areas, uh, that centralized government control can be a failure. So I wrote last week on the Hoover site about the rent stabilization laws in New York, and, and it's like a f- f- feast. It's like a – I don't even know how to do it. It's a f- Frenzy It's an orgy in which everybody seems to insist that the government control of maximum rates, a form of salami socialism, has to be continued to be extended even without the slightest sign of market kinds of failure. So I don't think they can run from this entirely because their economic programs will in effect necessarily require – a sort of a political unified force, and if they want to keep them in place, they have to remain in power perpetually, and that gets you back to the dictatorship problem
0: that I talked about earlier. Now, needless to say, at risk of uh, understatement,
1: I'm no fan of socialism. Um, Uh, Yes, I understand that.
0: And and I'm also uh, no fan of of rent control. But what you just said at the end sort of jumps out at me. I mean, if we define rent control, we include that as sort of a – some version of socialism, salami socialism, or you know, the gateway drug to socialism isn 't there a risk that we 're watering down the term socialism? Uh, it, surely rent control for all of its faults is not
1: socialism well, the answer is it isn 't but it is Let me put to you the, the, the reason why I use the word salami in front of it is is when you start talking about the collective ownership of the means of production as a sort of a genuine business matter. Uh, there are many situations where you have divided ownership of particular assets. And this is no great invention. You have landlords, you have tenants, you have life estates, you have remaindermen, you have easements and covenants over other properties, you've got mortgages, and all of these things essentially give you divided control. So long as the division is done by contract between two private parties, essentially they're probably value-maximizing transitions. But if you start to take away from the owner of property the right to dispose of that property on terms he sees fit, It got a little bit easy. So with the rent control situation, this was a big issue. And the reason why rent control is so important, it's not just price controls, which again are bad enough, but it's price controls where the sitting tenant is somebody whom you can never dispose of. So essentially what the government is doing is organizing ordering a landlord after the expiration of a lease to give possession of his property to a tenant and to tell them how much he can get with respect to it. Well, this is a huge infringement on ownership rights. And well, how bad is it? Well, if you look at the Oregon scheme, it's a kind of a crackpot scheme, uh, but it doesn't strike very tightly and you could probably live with it. So you wouldn't want to call that socialism. But the New York scheme is much tougher in terms of what they do and do not allow. It's this huge government operation. And the reason why why this inquiry is so difficult is on this continuum, it's very difficult to figure out where it is that you've gone whole hard. But you certainly can't ignore the the partial or creeping forms of socialism uh, because what happens is as you turn the news tighter and tighter, uh, the private sector is eventually going to wither and die, at which point the government will start to take all these things over through foreclosure or some other kind of device. Uh, So what I think in effect is that the transitional modes, if you've got a good political economy, you may be able to keep them stable. What's interesting in New York is when the – Senate in that state went Democratic from Republican, Polybar the door. The whole rent control date completely changed one way or another. It's not just rent control that's changing. There's going to be a massive takeover on the private side uh, through the effort to try and control the carbon dioxide levels in the name of global warming. And remember, New York State is now trying to do what Ms. AOC proposed for the um, federal government. I think the Green New Deal at the federal level is dead. But it's certainly not dead if you read the front page of the New York Times today at the Mm -hmm. state level. So uh, if you're trying to figure out where this works, I agree with you. You get 10% control. It's fine. If what you're trying to control is externalities, can't commit nuisances, it's absolutely indispensable to get that right. Uh, But I think you can't be so sanguine about all of these intermediate situations where they keep getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The constitutional standard is extremely helpful. It says if government goes too far in regulation, It becomes a taking. Adam, do you know how far is too far?
0: How far is too far, Richard?
1: Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) when I wrote my takings book, I said that's just the wrong metaphor. If you take a little, you pay a little, as the government. What is, you really want to do is. Understand the importance of implicit in-kind compensation. So if the government takes from you a certain degree of freedom, takes that similar freedom from everybody else, you put this whole thing together and it turns out everybody is better off at the common scheme than before. That's not socialism. That's constructive government. So uh, the best case of this is uh, you want to build a seawall in order to prevent the tides from wiping out the land, there's no way that one person could put a seawall around his house. It has to be up and down the beach. And so what you do is you essentially tax everybody to put the wall up and make sure that the wall does not block access to the beach or views. That was to stop the beach renourishment cases. Scalia got the scheme right, but he thought there wasn't a taking, which is completely wrong. Um, he just messed up the contract and the property law beyond recognition. The correct answer is it was a taking. It was a taking with return Compensation to everybody, it was a Pareto improvement. Pareto improvements are perfectly allowable in the classical liberalism. Uh, That's the great weakness of the hard libertarian provision. Uh, If they only worry about force or fraud, collective action which creates Pareto improvements is off limits. And that's the weakness of every kind of hardline libertarian theory associated with Murray Rothbard and that entire tradition, that anarchist tradition.
0: Now we can't we can't litigate the entire regulatory taking issue here. It would take too long, and I'd, I'd lose in the I'd lose in the end anyway. Oh, but I, I will say, with respect to this, what is socialism, I mean, I, I see your point, and I understand that that so much of this is, like I said earlier, really kind of the gateway drug to socialism, or it's the it's the first it could be the first steps of socialism. Um, but what worries me is that taking these sorts of policies that are. Far removed from outright government ownership and control of the means of production um, and policies that are much more conventional for better and for worse in American society and defining them as socialism you know, just waters down the term. In a way, I think it's what AOC and Bernie are trying to do is in, in talking about socialism, not in terms of what you know, sort of the classic – you know, classic view of what socialism really is, and and more in terms of well, socialism is is people getting a better deal on health care, socialism is people contributing more to the system, whatever they want to say. I worry that they're trying to redefine the word socialism in order to make it more politically palatable, and thus open the do- sort of acclimate people to the notion of socialism in its more classical form. In a way, I you know, so much of what I see AOC and, and Sanders, mostly AOC doing. In so, so many ways, it reminds me of, of things that President Trump accomplished on the campaign trail. When President Trump began to campaign, he seized—he really seized upon the term America first. Now, of course, America first up until 2016 had very different connotations, especially surrounding World War II non-intervention yes. and and, and the, the threat of Nazi Germany and so on. America first was a term that meant a lot more than just its literal terms suggested. Uh, One of President Trump's accomplishments in the 2016 campaign was to actually take that well-known phrase and really redefine it. In a way to suit his ends. I think AOC is doing something very similar with the term socialism, taking it away from its generally sort of understood meaning and trying to water it down. And I have to admit, Richard, I'm not saying that you're a fellow traveler of AOC or that you're one of her proponents, but I do wonder if if your approach to defining some of these things as socialism doesn't play into the hands of AOC and others who want to make socialism sound much more conventional, not the stuff of Soviet Russia, but the stuff of, you know, New York rent
1: control. Now look I agree with that and so let me put it in a slightly different way. The line that you are trying to draw at least in terms of conventional discourse is the line between socialism and progressivism. Right. And what these exactly. guys are tr- trying to do is to redefine themselves as progressives so as to put themselves in the tradition of FDR's New Deal, La Follette in Wisconsin, and all the rest of that stuff. Um, I think it's a very clever poi. Uh, there's no question that the term progressive, at least in left-wing circles, has driven out the term liberal um, to the point where it's a complete rout in the last five to ten years. It's also no doubt, I think, that whatever I wish to say against President Obama – and there's a very long list of indictable offenses – there as far as I'm concerned. He is probably to the right of every major Democratic candidate at this point in time. And it's absolutely stunning uh, that he will not say a word in favor of his former Vice President Joe Biden, the obvious reason being that even he has moved further to the left, the way Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton have done. And so uh, there is a strong progressive left movement on this. So when I'm actually talking about this in political terms. I I did write a book called How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution. I have at every single point talked about it as progressivism, not as socialism. And I've attacked it on the following terms, is that to the extent that progressivism represents a systematic rejection of competitive markets and puts in place state systems. Uh, What you have to understand is that you have lower returns and higher administrative costs, which in the end will squeeze everybody and so make the system unsustainable. And The way in which I start to argue that today is what you do is you make the state comparisons on this. Uh, You take a state like Connecticut, which is now in its kind of intellectual death rattle. They keep raising taxes. They keep losing population. It's gone from the most prosperous state in the United States to something that's about to become a has been. Uh, New York State has serious troubles, not as bad perhaps as Connecticut today. New Jersey is another disaster area. The same thing is true of California. You look at the states that have thrived, it turns out that they are low government states, the Indiana, Tennessee, uh, Texas, and the like. Well, I think in effect for current political battles, rather as opposed to intellectual battle, you're much better off doing what you suggest and taking after progressivism rather than taking after socialism. But the important thing to do is to say that as these people back off a total catastrophe, what they do is they create a mini catastrophe. There's not a single program that somebody like Elizabeth Warren puts forward that makes the slightest bit of sense. I'll just give another example. I don't know whether you want to call it socialism or not to say, I want to forgive all student debts. $2 trillion. Well, this was the Obama policy to take this out of private hands so that there's no lender discipline with respect to this market. Now you have two classes of people, those who've gotten their loans and have paid them back, and those who've gotten their loans, squandered the proceeds and can't take them back. And what we do is we reward those who have basically dissipated an opportunity and tax those who have managed to successfully discharge the thing. There's an old maxim, and it's still true, uh, which is you get more of what you tax. You get less of what you tax and more of what you subsidize, so we're going to get fewer frugal investors and we're going to get more reckless investors. And when you hear the democratic mantra, well, I'm only investing in the future. It's important to remember you can make horrible public investments just as you can make horrible private investment. And the program that Miss Warren puts forward is an illustration of that. I mean I could – I will put it to you Is there any program that she has put forward, whether on that, Medicare for all, corporate governance, the wealth tax, that makes the slightest bit of sense in terms of anything that you or I believe, assuming that there are, as there are, some real differences between us?
0: No. <laughs> that was an easy question.
1: Yeah, I think it's an easy question. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, people ask me, what do you think? And I say, well, here's what I think about Donald Trump. I think he's something of an egomaniac. I think he is in some ways a threat to democracy. I think his public record is divisive. I think his positions on immigration are often b- blindingly stupid. I think his foreign trade positions when he does the negotiations with China and, and with the other countries is often completely misguided. Yes, I will vote for him. Now, why is that? Because I think on every policy dimensions that he's wrong, the progressives are not going to be much better with the possible exception of immigration. But on all domestic issues having to do with taxation, regulation, wealth transfers, estate taxes, and so forth, I think that if when Donald Trump is elected, you got a 200-point jump in the market, notwithstanding Paul Krugman's prediction of a perpetual recession, right? Uh, if Elizabeth Warren is elected president, the market's going down 3,000 points the next day.
0: Well, speaking of Elizabeth Warren, and we're coming up on time, but I want to spend at least a few minutes on one last thing. I hope our listeners will humor us. Speaking of Elizabeth Warren, uh, the Boston Globe had an interesting op-ed earlier this week by Professor Jeffrey Flyer of the Harvard Medical School. He's a professor of medicine. He's the former dean, and he wrote about what he saw when he entered – the Louis Bornstein Family Amphitheater at Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital the, the Harvard Medical School's uh, teaching hospital he walked into the uh, into the lecture hall and was shocked by what he saw or by what he didn't see he didn't see the portraits the 31 gold frame portraits of famous uh, doctors famous uh, Harvard uh, doctors that had long adorned the halls the, the walls of this amphitheater they were gone but a year ago Harvard had announced that these portraits would be Going that they were removing them in order to make a more diverse audience and a more diverse student body more comfortable and less threatened by a wall full of, of white men uh, looking down on them. Um, and this, uh, in this new op-ed now a year later, uh, Professor Flyer talks about what a mistake this was um that we shouldn't take these things down that there's ways to to promote diversity and to make people more comfortable without just sort of pulling down reminders of great people that came before us um now i have to admit when it comes to the boston globe i usually just read the sports section i hadn't seen this op-ed until you uh you flagged it for me And, and so richard what are your thoughts on
1: it well, Jeff Flyer is an old friend of mine. Um, oh. In fact, you didn't know this, did you, Daniel Bell? Oh. The, well, what happened is he was actually came to fame in 1980 when he was asked to uncover a massive fraud which had taken place at uh, the Yale Law School with a man named Soman, which became an incredibly complicated story. If you want to read a great article, it's man by man named Morton Hunt writing about uh, almost 40 years ago, what it is that Flyer did as a 32-year-old to stop this. And when he was dean, he was a classical liberal, and and we had worked together from time to time. Uh, And he's resigned, and he basically continues to practice those things. And I think he's 100% correct. Let me just start saying what's going on here. Look, I am not happy with situations where you take a woman like Kate Smith, and she sings the song like Paul Robeson sings. You now, by modern standards, find it as offensive, and then you Take her statue out of the Yankee Stadium or take it out of the Philip Flyers. This woman was a hero to thousands, millions of Americans during World War Two. But when you look at these guys, it's not as though they sang – That's why darkies were born. These are great men, one and all. If you were to look at these pictures and ask how much did they contribute to human welfare and to human benefit, the number is absolutely staggering. If you were to go down and say, now why is it that you want to get these on? Other people are going to be offended. Well, what you tell people is, look, these are the people in a different time who excelled. These are the targets. These are the kind of inspirational people that you should aspire to, whether you're male or female, whether you're American, white, Asian, uh, Negro, black, whatever it is. You can all do what these people have done, and and I regard this as sort of like an ISIS-like maneuver. You don't like something about the past. What you do is you just obliterate it. And it is such a complete tragedy uh, to characterize individuals of unquestioned character and intellectual distinction and social benefit as being threatening or offensive. Um, I I don't even know what to say about this situation. I mean, I'm happy to say my portrait at this point precariously hangs on the wall at the University of Chicago Law School, where I've devoted so much of my professional life. Is somebody going to come along and say, you know what, we have a diverse student body here. Whatever this man did doesn't matter anymore. Uh, So I regard this as a tragedy. Look, Harvard University... Um, in this maneuver, in the antics that it's had with the finals club in the college, um, as I think has become – literally a caricature of what a decent and respectable university should be. This is at one point and probably still is the preeminent university in the world. And for these people to engage in this kind of childish antics only detracts from the serious mission of a university, which is the organization, dissemination, and advancement of knowledge and the chaining of the next generation of leaders so that they could replicate the successes of the past. And if somebody thinks having blank walls in a lecture hall, is going to achieve that particular result, then they're not really fit to lead anybody at Harvard or indeed anywhere else.
0: Now, a lot of people will see this story and it will remind them of the broader debate over Confederate war memorials in Virginia and Louisiana and elsewhere – um, I live near Leesburg, Virginia, and there's an ongoing debate about the the Confederate soldier statue near the courthouse, the question about whether to remove it. It looks like the statue is going to stay. I saw a news story this week saying, well, maybe instead of taking the statue down, maybe we'll just rename this, the courthouse itself under, after Charles Hamilton Houston, the great civil rights uh, litigator. Um, I have to admit, Richard, after thinking about these issues for a very long time, I've, I've come down basically on the side that I'm comfortable – uh, with maybe even a fan of removing Confederate war statutes, uh, statues, um, they're precisely because they're not like the men we're talking about in no. the Harvard Medical School. These are you know Confederate soldiers who took up arms against the United States. I think one of the challenges in our time is thinking through how to grapple with the past and how to draw distinctions. And I, I have no idea where you stand on the Confederate statue issue, I, but but I'll say. You know, To me, it seems a question of drawing distinctions, the difference, not just the, the obvious difference between you know, great doctors and these Confederate um, soldiers, but also drawing distinctions between, say, Thomas Jefferson and Confederate uh, soldiers and, and generals and so on. I think we can draw distinctions like that, and I think it's probably worth drawing distinctions between, say, Jefferson and Stonewall Jackson. Um, but I hate to ask you know ask such a, a challenging question as we 're running out of time, but how do you, how do you see this Harvard Medical School debate in conjunction with the Confederate statute
1: debate? okay well, first of all there 's a property distinction which I think has to be taken into account. Harvard is a private university. All of the statutes that you're talking about are on public parade, public's property parade grounds, open greens, courthouses, and so forth true. I think with respect to the entitlement, Harvard has the absolute right to do the dumbest things possible, including pulling down all of these situations. So my claim against them is simply a moral claim that they do not understand the importance of what their institution is about, and I think just as Harvard is allowed to do what it can with respect to its private property, I, as a citizen outside of Harvard, or indeed, especially as a citizen of Harvard, uh, would have the right to criticize these decisions for being what I thought as foolish demagogic or worse. And, and so uh, that seems to be on the private side, given that the locus of ownership is clear, uh, that they could do it. I think it would be just dreadful if the city of Boston or Cambridge came along and said, you have to put these things back up, or told them that they had to put up a diverse group of uh, medical researchers on the wall in order to satisfy the diversity requirements imposed by the state. Much harder when you're starting to deal with common property, and it's harder for both reasons, is that let's just take it first as a matter of simple preferences without examining their merit. Uh, There are many people who believe that uh, some of the people who worked for the Confederacy were great individuals. Uh, Some of them tried to work for the peace before and afterwards. There are some people who think that what you have to remember in order to get a union together is it takes not only a north that's dominant, uh, but it also takes a willingness to recognize the sacrifices of people Uh, in the confederacy and certainly if you look at Lincoln right after the war with malice towards none and charity for all uh, this is a guy who was not engaged in trying to take after the confederate generals knowing that they were revered in the south and that the north to start going after southern symbols after its conquest would probably complicate reconstruction. At the same time uh, you really had to take after the last vestiges of slavery and so forth and so what you're doing is you're pushing in two directions simultaneously. You're worried about keeping some of the heroes in place, and then what you're worrying about is making sure that you could get the good transition. As I recall it, uh, Robert E. Lee, after the um, Civil War, became the president of Washington University, and after its death, it was renamed Washington and Lee University. Am I right about that? I think so. Yeah, uh, well, now, do you really want to unname the university? I don't think I would want to do that. Would I want to take after Jefferson No, I would not take after Jefferson. Let me put it to you another way. There was a story yesterday in the Wall Street Journal about a noted womanizer um, who may have stood by and mocked a woman being raped. His name was Martin Luther King. And the purpose of this particular op ed was to say that all the evidence and all the charges were probably true with respect to that. (coughs) And certainly there were many charges that. King was a womanizer when he was alive, just the way that was true about John F. Kennedy and so forth. And The question now is, if it turns out that this so-called mocking at rape story is true, do we now end Martin Luther King Day? I mean, what, what you're asking about is a question of proportion. Uh, did Jefferson do anything good? Yes. Did he do something which wasn't so good? Yes. He was a slave owner. Was he a bad slave owner? Probably not. Was he a great can anybody be a good slave owner? Probably not. Uh, do we want to basically uh, decide to remove his lame from public life? I think the answer would be a disgrace. Washington owned slaves. Do we change the name of the capital? No. Uh, the rough test is if somebody is in line with the dominant morality of his particular time, not a firebrand, not a leader, who has done huge and great things for the public at large, what you do is you basically continue to observe the public monuments and psychologically put an asterisk next to the person's name. So I would not want to touch any of the Jefferson Monument. I wouldn't want to touch the Lincoln Modern Monument. If you actually look at Lincoln's statements about abolition, <clears throat> the key argument he made in 1858 is you can abolish slavery without giving blacks equal rights as citizens. I mean, that's not a winning position today. But it turns out that, you know, if you use the harsh light of contemporary judgments against all the people who did more than anybody today has done in order to get rid of the scourge of slavery, and then in effect what you're doing is you're saying, look, Mr. Lincoln, the problem with you is you don't rate because you did not do enough. And you could go through everybody who was involved in the liberation movement and condemn them. And I think that this would be a great tragedy. Uh, so – It's clear that when you have public spaces, you have to have collective public decisions. It's not like a university. There are going to be people on all sides of the issues. My own view is, I think what you would agree with, is you go slow before you take these things down. I'm comfortable with the decision of taking down the Confederate flag. I thought that Nikki Haley gave a magnificent speech several years ago at the Federalist Society why she made that decision Mm -hmm. after there had been a racially motivated murder. Inside the particular state. Uh, But the difficulty here is you're taking them one off. It's a question of where you draw a line, as you have suggested. And so, Adam, I'm quite happy to put you in charge because whatever our intellectual agreements, I always regard you as the distillation of a sensible, modern, conservative, prudential behavior. How do you like that? Well, what better note to finish on then? (laughs) Well, I couldn't give a nicer word to finish. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm looking forward to our
0: next conversation. But in the meantime, uh, thank you very much. And thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, Please tune into the Hoover Institution's many other podcasts, including Richard's podcast, The Libertarian. And we will talk again soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.